So we are continuing this week in our series on Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament wisdom book. This is actually our sixth week in this book. And if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that I talked about how the second half of Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom on a wide variety of topics. It's a little bit all over the place. And actually, it's kind of hard to discern a structure or a pattern to the order of the presentation of this wisdom. I'm not saying there isn't an order, but I have struggled to find it myself. So last week, the sermon was a little bit unconventional. Instead of having a sermon on a big topic, like we, one topic like we normally do, and then having a big idea drawn out of that topic, uh, we looked at a whole bunch of different proverbs on a wide variety of subjects. And this week, we're going to do the same thing again. This is Assorted Wisdom Part 2. So it's going to be a little over the, all over the place, but that's okay. Ecclesiastes is a little all over the place. Life is a little all over the place. And so, the Assorted Wisdom Part 2. But before we get into it, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the wisdom in your word. And Lord, I pray that each person here uh, would be able to hear at least one of these pieces of wisdom and think, hmm, yeah, that's, that hits home. That's, that's something that I should uh, think about, something that I should allow to, to transform my thinking or, or my, my, uh, my behavior. So just open us up, Lord, to uh, hear whatever it is you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. This guy sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't he? Better to go to a funeral than a party. A sad face is good for the heart. What is he saying? Is he encouraging us to be depressed? Well, I want to say very clearly that depression is definitely not the teacher's goal. That's not what he's trying to, to make happen for us. In fact, we're going to talk about this next week. But the goal of Ecclesiastes, the real goal, is to inspire us to live life as fully as we possibly can. I haven't really emphasized that too much so far, but next week we're really going to look at the passages that emphasize that. So the teacher is not anti-pleasure. God is not anti-pleasure. Uh, we'll talk more about that soon. But if that's true, what do we do with these verses? What is he saying here? Well, notice that twice the teacher uses the word better, right? It's better to go to a house of mourning. mourning. Sorrow is better than laughter. And on the face of things, neither of those is better than the other, right? So the question we have to ask is, better for what? Better for what? And the answer is, better for teaching us wisdom, right? The teacher is all about wisdom. Mourning and sorrow are better for teaching us wisdom, and specifically, death is better for teaching us wisdom. If you want to learn wisdom, you do a lot better going to a funeral than going to a party. Why is that? Well, a funeral reminds us that we're mortal, right? It reminds us that we have a limited amount of time. 
It reminds us that we are not in control. It reminds us that all of our possessions and our money, we don't get to hold on to it forever. It reminds us that we long for something that the world can't give us. And it reminds us that we need God. The English writer Samuel Johnson once said, Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. In other words, when we know that death is imminent, it causes us, us to focus on what's really important. Right? And what the teacher is saying is, we need to let death concentrate our minds even if we're not about to be hanged in two weeks. Right? We need to let death concentrate our minds now. The reality is, all of us are going to die. None of us know when it's going to be. And the teacher is saying, if you want to live a good life, you need to start by recognizing that. He says, death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. The living should take this to heart. In other words, let the reality of death influence the way that you live and feel. The wise person knows they're going to die, knows that everyone around them is going to die, and they let that fact concentrate their minds. They take it to heart. Here's one reason I think this is valuable. I think taking death to heart helps us to be kinder people. You are less likely to be mean to someone if you're thinking, tomorrow they could be dead. You know, and, and that's true of everyone that we speak to. It's true of all of our family members, true of the waitress, true of the guy that cuts us off in traffic, right? Any one of them could die tomorrow, could die today. You might feel like you were justified in being nasty to the person in customer service at Walmart, right? But if you found out the next day that that person had died later that afternoon, you'd probably regret it, right? You'd think, ah, I should have been more patient with that person. A guy I know was driving once, and the person behind him was following him very closely, or at least in his opinion, the person was following very closely. And that's a pet peeve of his, so he was really angry. And then the guy turned to go into a gas station, and this guy, he was so mad that he turned the car around to go to the gas station and then give this guy what for, you know, to just lay into him. He said, what are you doing following me that close? But when he got to the gas station, he looked at the pump, and he saw that the guy was someone he knew, and not only somebody that he knew, but it was a guy whose wife had died of cancer the week before. And then all that rage just was gone, <laughs> and he felt ashamed. See, because death is a teacher. It's a very good teacher. It has this power to cultivate empathy, and the wise take that to heart. You know, what if you knew that someone close to you was going to die tomorrow? Somebody you know, say, your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, maybe a friend that you've been estranged from. If you knew that they were going to die tomorrow, would you suddenly feel a need to forgive? Or to apologize? Or to confess something? Or to say, I love you? Many people hold grudges for years and years, but then suddenly, when death is imminent, they want to make peace, right? Because death is a great teacher. 
It teaches us to let go and forgive and reconcile. One of the best ways to bring estranged family members together is a funeral, right? Family members might not see each other for years and years. They might be, you know, really angry at each other, and then somebody dies, and they all they come together. But why do we wait until death is imminent or until it's arrived to let it teach us? Right? The teacher is saying, don't wait. Let death teach you now. If you feel like you need to forgive someone before they die, don't wait until they're on life support. You know, do it now. If you feel like you need to tell someone you love them, don't wait until they have a terminal illness. Do it now. Don't wait until the last minute, or worse, until it's too late. It's a recipe for re regret. Now, the foolish way of life doesn't take death to heart at all. It just tries to deny death, to pretend it's not going to happen. It tries to escape even thinking about it, and it distracts itself with feasting and partying and laughing all the time and turning everything to a joke and never being serious about anything. And there's a time and place for laughter and enjoyment and feasting, of course. God's not against those things, but they don't teach us to live a good life the way that death does. We have to let death be our teacher. Let death be your teacher. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And I think this is part of what he had in mind when he said that. Don't live in denial of death. Live in light of death. Okay, second gem of assorted wisdom. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 5. So just moving right on from where we were. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this one because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But the gist of it is this. If a wise person comes to you and says, you know what, I'm concerned about you. I think you're on a dangerous path, and uh, I think you're making some poor choices. That might be hard to hear, but we, what we need to recognize is that that is so much more valuable than a foolish person who comes to us and sings us a song. In other words, who entertains us, who just makes us feel good. So this morning, I want us to let this proverb ask all of, the, all of us the question, am I ever willing to listen to correction? Am I ever willing to listen to correction? Now granted, not everyone who offers correction is wise. In fact, I think it's kind of a hallmark of the unwise that they often offer correction even though they shouldn't. Okay? So this is not saying that you should just embrace whatever anybody tells you to do. But wise correction is incredibly valuable, and we have to be open to it. We have to ask ourselves, is there anybody in my life who I allow to tell me things I don't want to hear? Do I give anyone the ability to do that? Some of us might say, well, I'm just one of those people who has to learn the hard way. I can't let anyone tell me what to do. I just have to learn the hard way. And the teacher would say, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, that, if that's true, that's a, sh that's a shame. You could avoid the hard way if you just listen. Just swallow your pride and listen to wisdom, and it's going to save you a lot of trouble. If we're never willing to be corrected, life is going to be a lot harder than it needs to be. So... Am I willing to be corrected? Next one. Chapter 9, verse 17. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded 
than the shouts of a ruler of fools. On the surface, I think this one sounds like a no-brainer, right? Listen to wise people, don't listen to foolish people. But the real insight in this proverb comes from the words quiet and shouts. Because what that's telling us is that usually words of wisdom are quiet and foolish words are loud. And I don't think he's literally talking about volume here. What he's saying is that wise words have a way of going unnoticed, right? But foolish speech tends to capture the attention. It's easy to hear what's foolish. We do that naturally. But we really have to listen. We really have to pay attention to hear what's wise. I think this is so important for us to recognize today because we live in what's called the information age, right? We have more information available to us today than we could ever process through, right? It's near infinite. And we need to recognize that the words of wisdom are rarely the loudest words. They aren't necessarily the most popular. They're not necessarily the most tweetable or the most shared on social media. The wisest words are thoughtful. They're nuanced. They pay attention to, de to detail. They uh, pay attention to facts and research and that sort of thing. But unfortunately, those kinds of words aren't usually attention-grabbing. The kind of words that tend to be attention-grabbing are the sensational words, right? And they're the words that appeal to fear and provoke outrage. Those are the words that usually come through the loudest. Scientists talk about how we have this part of our brain uh, that controls our base instincts, and they've nicknamed it the lizard brain, which, you know, is a little insulting to lizards. Uh, but they call it that because it's the part of our brains that's the most primitive and animal-like. So it's not reflective, it's not rational, it's not careful, it's not moral. Basically, it's not, it's not wise. It's not driven by wisdom. It's just driven by base instincts. And what are those base instincts? Our base instincts are the will to survive and the will to reproduce. Uh, now, the will to survive, it keeps us always on the lookout for threats, right? Because if there's a threat, you might not live, right? So it's always on the, on the lookout for threats. And that means specifically it's on the lookout for things that you could be afraid of or that will make you angry. Right? Because when you go into survival mode, you go into the fight or flight response. So you're either going to put up a fight or you're going to run away. You're either going to feel angry or you're going to feel afraid or you're going to feel both. And then the will to reproduce, of course, is always looking for something that appeals to our sexual drives. So here's what happens. Every day you are bombarded with all kinds of information and your brain has to decide what information am I going to prioritize? What, what am I going to privilege? And if we're not thoughtful about it, the kind of information that we prioritize is the information that appeals to our lizard brains, right? The information that plays on our fear or our anger or our sexuality. That's the information that comes through the loudest. That's the information that is shouted at us because it appeals to this instinctual, base, uh, reflexive part of us the lizard brain. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? There are things that are worthy of our fear and of our anger, for sure. But here's the thing. 
the lizard brain is not good at determining what those things are. Okay, in order to really know what we should be afraid of and what we should be angry about, we need the quiet words of the wise. Okay, we need the kind of words that come not just from our base instincts, but from the parts of our brains that can actually reflect on those instincts, right? From the parts of our brains that care about truth and facts and logic and morals and values and right and wrong and on what the Holy Spirit and scripture have to say. But the lizard brain says, I have no patience for any of that, right? And so the words of fools are loud and the words of the wise are whispers. And we in the church have to learn how to listen to the whispers, right? We need to listen for the voices who are not just trying to manipulate our fear and our anger and our sexuality, and we need to, to discipline our minds so that we're not just living out of the lizard brain. Listen for the quiet words of the wise. Okay, next gem of wisdom. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now, I realize on first glance this might sound really anti-women, right? But that's not what the teacher is trying to say here. The, the teacher's point is not that women are, are bad. In fact, at another point in Ecclesiastes, the teacher says, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. He commands this to men, right? So clearly he does not think of all women as being snares. But what the teacher is warning us of here is the dangerous power of sexual attraction. The dangerous power of sexual attraction. Sexual attraction needs to be guided by something other than just the lizard brain, right? And if it's not, it can lead us into relationships that are like prisons. Relationships that the teacher says are more bitter than death. If you are married and you allow sexual attraction to lead you to infidelity, that creates a situation that is more bitter than death. And if you are single, and you allow sexual attraction to lead you into a relationship with someone you're not compatible with at all, that can be more bitter than death. I, sexual attraction can turn people into complete idiots, right? Uh, it can lead people into relationships where everyone around them knows this is a terrible idea, right? It's so transparently obvious, but the person in the relationship isn't willing to admit it or, or can't see it, right? It can, it can lead people to entangle their entire lives with people they don't even like, right? It can lead people to throw away their marriages and their families and their reputations, even their faith. And the teacher is saying to us, do not let your lizard brain completely control you in this area. If you do, you will regret it. If you're a woman who is attracted to men, I think you can change a few Words in this passage, and the spirit of it remains, I find more bitter than death, the man who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The woman who pleases God will escape him, but the sinner he will ensnare. Same point, sexual drive can lead us to terrible relationships. Don't let it do that. 
All right, one more gem of wisdom for this morning. This is chapter 11, starting in verse 3. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And I realize those verses are kind of cryptic. It sounds like the spiritual guru, you know, who says a bunch of things. And everyone goes, mmm, yes. And inside, they're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so I do think a very valuable point is being made here. So in verse 3, the teacher is giving us examples of things that happen that we can't control. Just inevitable aspects of life, right? If clouds are full of water, they rain. Doesn't matter what you think about it, right? That's just what's going to happen. If a tree falls, it doesn't matter where you want it to land. Wherever it lands, it lands. And life is just full of stuff like this, right? Stuff that we can't control. We can't control the wind and whether it blows down trees, and we can't control the clouds and whether they bring forth rain. Now, verse 4 is where the punchline is. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. So, you see, he's talking here about the two things that he just talked about, the things that can't be controlled, the wind and the clouds. And the point he's making is, Whoever focuses on what they can't control will never get anything done. Whoever focuses on what they can't control will never get anything done. Some of us are familiar, I'm sure, with the famous serenity prayer. Uh, It's used in a lot of 12-step programs. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a good prayer. And what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is talking about here is someone who has not learned how to pray this prayer, right? Because they're always fixated on things they cannot control. And they're refusing to act because of the things they can't control. One of the themes that I've tried to emphasize in the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is unpredictable and uncontrollable, right? There's so much that we can't know. We don't know the future. Much of the future we don't know. Much we can't know. And one response to that is just to say, well, I'll just, you know, not do anything, you know, because everything's uncontrollable. And the teacher is saying, no, no, (laughs) you still have to act. You still have to do things. We still have to make the most of life, even though life is unpredictable. We should focus on what we can control and do the best we can with that. Here's another way of putting it. Uh, What the teacher is warning us against here is what I would call, what if there's bears thinking? Uh, There's a video that someone showed me on YouTube. Maybe you've seen it. It was made about 10 years ago, probably by some college-age kids. It's supposed to be comedic. And it shows different people describing how to do various home projects, like fixing your dimmer switch, or installing a computer network. And the person cheerfully explains how to do this home project. And then right when they finish, there's this ominous music that begins, and the camera zooms in, and it gets very serious. And the person says, but what if there's bears? And he starts talking about how powerful and dangerous bears are. And some of us have a, what if there's bears 
kind of disposition in life. You know, when we consider doing something, all we can think of is all the potentially terrible things that can happen if we do this. And most of those things are outside of our control, and they're probably extremely unlikely, too. But we can't help but think about them. We can't help but say, but what if there's bears? And the teacher is saying, don't ask what if there's bears. Come on, just act. Accept the uncontrollable nature of life. Accept that there's always going to be some risk. Don't, don't be crazy. Don't take absurd risks, right? But don't let concern over what you cannot control keep you from being fully alive. Don't let it freeze you up. If we're too worried about things that we can't control, we'll never do anything, right? If you really think about it, if you're, if you're too worried about what you cannot control, you'll never even get in a car. You can't control all those other cars, right? You'll never get on a plane. You don't know what's going to happen if you get on a plane. You'll definitely never get married. You can't control the other person, and you shouldn't try, right? You'll never have kids. I mean, my goodness. You can't control what your kids are going to do. You don't know what's going to happen there. You'll never pursue your dreams or your passions. You'll never follow God's call in your life. You just won't do it. And you know what else you'll never do? You'll never share your faith. You'll never invite anybody to church. You'll just think, well, what if I invite them and they think it's stupid? You know, what if I bring them and Pastor Ryan says something dumb? Even dumber than usual. What if inviting them makes our friendship awkward? What if there's bears? And the teacher is saying, stop worrying about the bears. Stop worrying about this stuff you can't control. Accept that every action involves risk. Accept that and then trust God and act. Do stuff. Live. So that is Assorted Wisdom Part 2. There's a lot more wisdom in there that we didn't cover, uh, so I encourage you to look at it yourself, study it, meditate on it, think about it. And next week, we'll bring this to a close um, with what I hope will be a very interesting conclusion. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again uh, that your word is a light to our path. And uh, God, I just pray that we would trust your word to show us where to step next, uh, that we would be open to, correct, to correction, uh, that we would be humble enough to say, yeah, I don't have it all figured out, and I, I want to learn wisdom, and I want to walk in the ways of wisdom. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.